Yeah, you know, like I understand uh, musicians in a many ways because this is the only thing that I've done primarily all my life. And I understand uh, some musicians where people say, you know, this guy is really, really uh, difficult. This guy is really, but a lot of times it doesn't really be the person. It'd be the pressure that the person is under. Music, being an artist, uh, is a very demanding um, profession. And I know all professions are demanding, but being a an artist to me is is extremely demanding because you know people want a good show, people want to uh, they want to see you on time, they want to see you uh, in good spirits, and 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 in many of cases there could be a day. One of those days where everything just just went wrong, you know, traffic, traffic. Uh, it could be um, uh, weather conditions. It could be where where you every minute is so um, important to 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 get closer to the destination so things can run smoothly. And then, but a lot of artists I notice carry over. Uh, the frustrations of that day. When I hit the stage or when I do an interview, the most important thing to me at that time is that show or that interview or whatever I'm doing in my profession. I want to be professional, you know? So, um, but I don't think it's the artist's uh, intentions uh, when, when you're dealing with a difficult artist it's not their intention. It's the pressure. You got to take the pressure with a grain of salt. You got to take it with a grain of salt because pressure is all part of the job. So you come and, uh, okay, I got this pressure. So, hey, man, let me, I just want to have some fun. You know, it's about having fun. So regardless of what the person has to do, the most important thing is to relieve oneself of Whatever the problems may be, whatever the, the the drama is in that day, because this is what you do. So, get in gear, get happy. I'd like to say, smile. It's not just an artist thing either. Obviously, it it it's just a thing that you encounter with people in life, and I, I think we've all been guilty of it at certain times. Of yeah. yeah, you're short with people. You're a little bit rude, and something that I've been trying to get better at in my own life and in my own head is being mindful of understanding that a lot of pressures that I don't know about that that person is dealing with and trying yeah. to work with them on that level. Yeah. But the main thing, I think if one, if one is a happy spirit, happiness is going to flow out. It might not flow out immediately, but as the conversation goes on, everything happens naturally the happy person within the confines of that individual appears and um and i thank god man I, i'm like um you know every day i wake up and everything is working i'm happy you know if financially uh if it's not what i wanted for that day or or there's some some um some some moments of that's causing um, anxieties. What I try to do is realize, hey, I'm breathing and I'm here, and and life is short. That being said, a person can live. If you live to be a hundred years old, that's not long. It's long as far as human uh, life expectancy is concerned, but. It's not long. The world been at we don't know how many years. They they, they carbon dating not trying to find out how long it's been at. But I bet you it's been here just as long as time. You know what I'm saying? Just as long as uh when the word was uttered. Let there be light. So that we, and if we count that up, we would we would have we would go through 
through about at least four or five computers, you know, counting that up. You know. They think it's about six billion years, which uh, is that, that's a lot of time. That's a lot. That's a lot of human lifetimes in, in six billion years. It, it, it is. It is. It is. But getting on that subject, for instance, uh, six billion years. Well, what, what what happened? I heard about the Big Bang theory. I mean, but then what exploded? You know what I'm saying? Okay, once we find out what exploded, and then we got to find out now where did that come from? And then once we find out where that come from, we got to find out. We have to go deeper. And then sometime I wonder, are we as human beings, are we thought in God's mind? In other words, maybe there was nothing in the beginning. This maybe. But maybe nothing is the absence of all things but the container of all possibilities. Perhaps we are a possibility. We are a possibility that is Act we are an acting possibility. Because since matter cannot be created nor destroyed, so it must have been imagined. So maybe we're in God's mind. Maybe God is so precise that it thought of everything that is possible to think of and spreaded it throughout the confines of his mind, which is endless. Because whatever is being realized, there's plenty of room for it to grow because there is nothing else. And God is not a thing, so God must be the like of all matter. So, so no thing, no thing. Now, what can fly faster than, than light? No thing, no thing. So that makes sense. So, but it's totally logic. It is like um, Pythagoras was saying, built on numbers. Like in in um, Java language, where if you put the right brackets and the right words and the right commas and all of this, these. Uh, things in a correct form and run it through a computer images and everything appears. So maybe God is the word. Because it said in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. So maybe we are a sophisticated more than I mean more than can be imagined. Logic thought. And God is the processor. You know, just just a little something I was thinking. The classic optimist versus pessimist thing is the, the glass being half full or half empty. Yeah. But I think that maybe we can frame this in a way of thinking about, they'll say, I'm a writer. And, and writers, there's a cliche among writers about the tyranny of the blank page. Yeah. It's sort of the downside of infinite possibilities. And I think you could say that too about a blank canvas and painting or back when they used to record to tape, you know, a, a blank reel of tape. But yeah. I think I think what you're getting at is that a blank canvas isn't a limitation. It's it's a presentation of infinite possibilities. Uh, all, all possible things that you can think of. So uh, that being said, I think um, I think that's what our lives and I think we can do whatever we imagine to do if we believe and stay as one. If the world became one, there's there's nothing we we couldn't do. Cancer and everything could be could be uh, eliminated. That being said, I try music wise 
when I record, I try to put whoever I'm working with, we become as one. You know, like Gabe, Gabe Roth, uh, when he was producing this album, when he was producing um, Sentimental Fool album, all of the songs, I really feel Gabe and I became as one because um, I listened to what he had to say and I tried to to be that vocal instrument that he had envisioned. And I think him being such a great producer, he has a gift that I'm lacking, which would be the ability to see ahead what can be done. So what I did, I followed him on the new album. I followed him. I was listening to him very carefully. And um, I tried to follow him until when I, when I, what my indicator was, when I see him, see the expression on his face where he's totally, he was totally um, pleased with what, what was done. I leave it at that. I don't try to go back and and um, do anything different because he he was the producer. So I have to. It's like he's captain of the ship. He's the um, you know if you captain tell you to do something, you know, in the confines of um, orders and stuff. Which it wasn't wasn't that um 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 it wasn't that um tight band but 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 um I try to follow his try to get exactly what he was looking for for me. And and thus far man the people are responding with the album in such a way that I'm totally totally elated. I'm so pleased with the results that we get when I sing these songs um, uh, in person. I mean, the audience thus far has been totally um, uh, congruent with, with, with the band. Everybody seems like we, the audience and the band becomes as one. And, and it's such a pleasing feeling, such a satisfying feeling. Have you given yourself over like that in the past? Uh, I've given myself over somewhat, but not like that. Because um, no one ever asked, asked me um, other than, you know, sing a song. And and I sing it until um, I think they, until they say, oh, man, that's a take. That's a take. But in this case... What the difference is with uh, the way Gabe did it was we had a, a conversation prior to the sessions, and uh, and I was telling them like being an artist, uh, I have to get in the in the character. Like I, when I'm not an artist, I'm my regular self. Like um, do the things that. Everybody's do work around the house, do what got to be done. And But when I become the artist, the only thing at that moment that I'm about is that song. You know, like when I, when I come on stage, I become, I try to become the songs. I try to be the storyteller way to bring the song to life. And when I explained that to Gabe, and he said, why don't, why don't you do that on records? And but I would will I truly believe most artists will agree with me. Um, there's a, a second person. There's yourself, and there's the person that that's the singer. The singer he comes he comes when he 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 doesn't come right off. I can't say just just come. He has to. He has to just surface. And when I become that person on stage, I'm not the same person. Although I know I am in regard to physics, but 
the artists find ways to say things. And and uh, and I'm quite sure a lot of artists will, 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 will identify with this. So Gabe, when he found when I told him that, he said, I want you to when you I want to just record you and 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 I should know, I should feel what you feel if that is true. So we started to record. And he it was it got into a point of where every time that true artist uh, surfaced, he knew. He knew, he, he knew. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I said, you know. And then we're cut, then all of a sudden, the artist is like very finicky cat, you know. He's like, um, he's like um, one of those guys that uh, take a paintbrush, man, and it's got to be just right. He's a perfectionist. Yeah. So he let me be that throughout the process, man. And and the response that we're getting on this record is just incredible. I've been hearing this a lot from a lot of musicians lately, and I think it's something that really has come to the front because of the time they've had away from the stage. You know, obviously. Yeah. For the better part of the last few years, it's been it's been difficult, sometimes impossible to get out in front of a group of people. They tell me about the energy exchange with the audience, you know, that, that you can feel the energy the audience is giving to you. And I wonder if that's traditionally been part of your transformation is really sort of feeding off of that energy. Yes, I do. I, I feed off of the audience, no doubt. Because my job is to try to become as one with the audience. I, if I'm going to make them feel exactly what I feel, then I have to try in some ways to get as close as I can to to, to, to the, the energy of their thoughts. So I guess that's the reason why they call it so. Because what it is when I start to sing and the audience start to feel it, something happens, something very magical happened. Everybody get happy. Everybody, it's almost like um, uh, one of those um, one of those old-fashioned churches, church, churches that you used to go to where um, the, the whole place just get happy. And everybody jumping and, hey, man, the more they jump, the more I jump. <laughs> And and and, and uh, every night is like an ex- a, a journey to um, uh, we try to get to euphoria. We try to get to that place called euphoria, where, where you just feel so good. And I think we get there some nights, but and the nights that we don't get all of the way there. We had a good time traveling. Speaking of the ability to feed off that energy in, in person and they're elevating you, you're elevating them. It, it goes back and forth. Is it hard to tap into that in the same way when it's just, you know, you and the producer or you and one or two other people in the studio? No, one has to be patient. Well, in my case, I guess some artists can just do it just, just at random. But with me, I have to be very patient. Because I, you know, like a lot of artists have um, have um, um, have divided themselves and sort of like uh, they may have a, a nickname for the personality that is the artist. What Lee feels is the artist in this case. When Lee comes. When Lee comes, I know when he comes, because I think we all, like Sigmund Freud said, you know, we you have the ego, the super ego, and the instinctive drive. The id. I think I exist every day as the ego and the instinctive drive. Now the super ego, that is Lee, which he's not an egotistical person, but. When I said the ego, I let it just take control and say the words the way it want to say it. And when I do that, I might close my eyes for a second and I see the audience like going like like crazy, you know? 
And I went, and it makes me, that makes me feel good. And then it also gives Lee, the, my, my super ego, more energy. And, and so the more they feel good, the more I feel good. It gets to a point where I don't want to stop. I do not want to stop this process. This process can go on for as long as it pleases, as far as I'm concerned. But in the, in that process of out, have to, the ego now have let the super ego do what it does. Now being the ego, which is in control of the instinct to drive in the super ego, it's time to leave. It's time now to go. It's the hour and a half is over now. But I don't want to go. That's what the ego be saying. You know what I'm saying? I want to, I don't want to stay happy like this. And it's man, it's just a process of man where every night come becomes a, a, um, for me, it becomes, um, it's just something, man, that I just love to do. I just love to do and to see the smiling faces of the people, man, and their reactions. Oh, man, I tell you. Matter of fact, I, I, I got real happy there for a moment. Let me calm down. Let me calm down. Stay as happy as you need to. I, yeah. I'm glad you brought up ego, not so much in the Freudian sense, but just in the kind of like the day-to-day way that we use the word ego to mean like egotistical. Because when you talk about giving yourself over to another person, I think that that, I mean, I know that requires the, the dropping of of the ego. And I also think that that's something, the ability to do that comes with age. Because when you're younger, you know, when you're in your you know 20s, when you're just starting out, we, we all feel like we know everything. And it's hard for us to sort of give in and let somebody else, you know, take the wheel. And you see, like... We uh, the mind. I feel like the mind itself is a. Uh, you have. I think the ego is the conscience, the conscious mind, or when you're just paying attention to everything you can for survival out here. That's the ego, and the instinctive drive is the uh, is the adrenaline. Is the adrenaline? In other words, something happened. Well, you don't have to even think about jumping out of the way, a car coming. You don't have to even think about jumping out of the way. You just jump automatically. You- it's primal. It's your it's your lizard brain. Yeah. So you don't really tell yourself to jump. Something to say, get, you know, you just do it. So that will be the instinctive drive. And I think, but the superego, which I don't think nobody should walk around here 24 hours a day with the superego. The superego is... Ego is supposed to be used for entertainment purposes or something that has to be figured out, um, like scientists or something, trying to figure out some sort of equation. But that should be used for whatever the purpose is for that. And it should be controlled at all times. So the, the superego, if a person walk around it with a superego all the time, they be doing things that may, that may, you're not on stage, man. You know, you got to cut it up. We're sitting in a restaurant, man. You can't, you know. So that being said, the ego controls the super ego and instinctive drive just happens. It's by chance. You see something, man, you don't have to think about it. I need to get out of the way quick, you know. And, you know, so you prepare, you know, you see yourself Getting, in, getting into an accident. Superego takes a toll because it's going to think fast, think it all the way out. That's the reason why some people say they saw their lives flash before their eyes. The superego is thinking so fast that it knows exactly what you must do to get out of this situation because this could be a life or threatening situation. But then after it's over, people say, man, how'd you do that? You know, you have, you probably seen the news uh, where some person just rescued somebody, went through a fire. The person didn't really do that. It was that super ego inside that gave them the, the, the he didn't have to even think. He just went in there having all the fire going all around and went in to grab the person, let him out the sink. You know, a lot of firemen and policemen got that, got that going on. You know what I'm saying? But that's the way I analyze it. So, and Gabe understands 
um, what I was talking about. And so the the tender, the tender connecting energy with the with the superego, uh, it knows exactly how to say things, how loud to say it, how soft to say it, because it connects spirit to spirit. But after that process is over, after the recording is over, I turn back into my regular self, which I'm a very dull, dull guy in, in life in general. Well, you know, I'm satisfied man, with a couple of beers, a couple of beers, and, and that's it. That's all I need, you know. And um, But I had to bring that out. I'm hoping that someone else feel the same way I feel uh, because uh I think life is an experiment and we are supposed to to analyze ourselves if we're going to become a better person. If we're going to become a better, if we just take it for granted every day that I'm just going to just do what I want to do and just and have no sense of what I'm doing and what did I do good that day? What did I could, what can I do better the, the next day? And how can I be, in other words, it's all about becoming a better person. So when I come on stage, I want to become a better, every night I want to become a better uh, entertainer. So I let my super ego, let it out there and control it, control it, let it do what it, because it's very entertaining. And then when the end of the show, hack that ego up. When I put that, when I put the clothes in the bag, the ego goes with the clothes. See, a lot of artists, they leave the stage and they take the ego with them. You know, and that's nobody saying so much trouble. You know, so what I do when I finish the show, the sweat that's in those garments folded up, that is the super ego. Now I'm back to, I'm back to just being me. I really appreciate this idea that trying to better yourself is really kind of, it's a lifelong thing. You know, I think a lot of people get yeah. to a certain point in life where, where they're like, all right, that's it. I'm not drilling. I'm not getting any better than this. But some of these things, you know, the ability, for example, the ability to turn it off once you get off stage or the ability to be a good listener in the recording studio, are these things that you had to work to get to that place in your life? Uh, yes. 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 Uh, in, in my earlier years, in my earlier years, I was so, um, I wanted it so bad and so quick because I thought fame was, was, was basically, uh, if you had fame, you, you, uh, you, you had everything. That's the way I was thinking when I was, when I was, um, um, a young man. And, but, it didn't take long for me to realize that that's not true. You have everything when you have your help and strength, you know? So I learned that all of the things that I want, patience, if you endure and you do what needs to be done, what you're looking for will come. But patience, patience, you know, when I was young, I was just like an other young man, a bit impatient. But then every time as I got older, every time I became impatient, which to me, I don't know what religion other people um, listening to this broadcast are believing in, but I believe all religions regardless what the religion is, if it tells you to do the right things in life, to love, to love, to, to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you, if it tells you that good stuff, regardless what religion, although I'm a Christian, I believe that, that that religion is good. Anything that tells you to do things to benefit the world, to benefit because all of the creatures, all of the human beings, all of the things God put here. So we got to do things in accord to make 
life uh, as long lasting as possible for, for all of the, the the inhabitants on the planet. Although, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that I guess according to um, um, my religion, such as eating certain foods and but you know everybody man I'm gonna gonna eat something some things that um we know ain't good for us and I haven't gotten that discipline yet I haven't gotten that discipline I I mean look I know I shouldn't be eating a lot of, lot of meat but I love steaks I love steaks like I got a piece of steak what hey baby got which I forget she just left I was gonna ask her if he, <laughs> did she uh put on those that food today that's those but uh, getting back to it, I think we, we are put here to see how well-rounded we can be with our uh, flaws. Everybody has flaws. If you see somebody say they got flaws, man, they lie to you. They lie to you. Now, and maybe they are perfect people on the earth, but I just haven't met one, you know? Uh, and maybe I didn't, didn't talk to them long enough. And there are a lot of people who think they're perfect. I'll tell you that. <laughs> man, for a person to be thinking that they're perfect, man, I'll tell you, man. Now, that's what you call egoed out. That is egoed out. But um, in my youth of the time when I was um, starting out music, I was, I let the ego just stay surface all the time. And nothing was happening. I found what by the time I got about about thirty, and I started reading um, the good book. I found out it's best to be the best person that you can be, and let others let others be let listen listen to to others. Sometimes it's best just to listen to others, and um, it's been it's. That's when things sort of rolled for me after all of those years. Obviously, it's just a part of life, but I also think it's really important that sometimes you get knocked on your ass. Yeah. Learning that humility, that's what helps us grow as people. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. I think he that exalts himself become a base. And he that become, he that humbles himself will become exalted. Being humble, that's what I really, really get a kick out of, being humble, being thankful. Because, you know, I've known people in my life that I thought um, would do extraordinary things, and their lives were taken short at an early age. And I've known people that like my mother and my father that I wish was here today. But I'm glad when I look back in retrospect that I gave them the respect that they deserve. I don't have, I don't be saying I wish I would have done this, I wish I would have done that. So I'm quite at peace with with um my now um expired parents. And I, but they still live. They still live within the, within my spirit. They still, you know, although I can't touch them, I can't see them physically. But their images, their images are in the um, peripheral of my mind every day. So I think that's the main thing. Like if you get, if artists get a hit record, it's a good thing. But man, just living in general, I think it comes out in your music when you when you live a, a life that you truly trying to be the um, a good person. I think people can sense that. People can sense it. I know I can. I I can get around certain people, man, and I just get good feelings from certain people. And then more good, good feelings from certain people than others. You know, some some people maybe maybe it's because they don't know how to express themselves. 
But in general, man, I love just about everybody. There are some people that it's kind of hard, hard, hard to deal with. <laughs> they don't always make it easy, do they? <laughs> you talked a little bit about your impatience when you're younger, and that immediately made me think of this story of you at 17 years old moving to New York City with you know 20 bucks in your pocket. I mean, that is like that's the height of just like being single-mindedly focused on pursuing that one thing. Yeah, I was. I was single-minded at that time, pursuing, um, uh, trying to become that star that I wanted to be. But in the process, even though it took quite some time, um, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change nothing. Even in my naive stage, because the mistake that I made, that I made in the past, were my learning, those were my learning curves. And when I made a mistake, I try not to repeat that same mistake again. And I try to become better, a better person. But um, it was all, hey, man, I had a good time. It was, it was, it was tough. I live in Queens now. I'm from California. I moved out here. But when I moved out here, I had some money saved up. I, you know, I had like I had a job. I was a little I was yeah. old, you know, I was in my twenties. I was older than than you were at 17. It sounds it sounds scary to do that. To 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 do that. It's just not and again, literally having I guess it was twenty dollars in your pocket and then that soon soon became two dollars. Yeah. Yeah. By the time I paid the taxes and I got over to um Brooklyn. And I was down about two bucks. And um, and I didn't even know whether the gentleman that I was looking for that told me to come to New York, his name was Fred Williams. I befriended him in North Carolina. He believed in my talent. And um, I didn't even know whether he was home. When the guy told me uh, Elder Street, 36 Elder Street, and uh, he said, this is, this is where you are. Um, this is where you're going. I took it for granted. I got out of the taxi, paid the taxi, and when he gave me the change back, I didn't even think about supposing he's not home. I, I wasn't thinking like that then. I just knew he was home. And but when I knocked on the door and rang the doorbell, I didn't hear anybody coming in immediately. Then I, uh, my heart kind of, kind of um, I'm hoping that he's home. The taxi going too. They got but two bucks. Don't know nobody. He finally came to the door, and when he came to the door, man, he looked up at me, man. His eyes got big as two fifty cent pieces. He looked at me, man. What, 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 what you doing here? What you doing? <laughs> I said, man, you told me to come, man. He didn't think you'd take him up on the offer. <laughs> he told me he was moving. He was in there cleaning out his apartment because he was moving. He was getting married. The next day. And um, so we talked to the landlady. And the landlady said, I could stay, but I had to get a job. You know, which which I'm still, you know, she wanted to be paid. And uh, so I had a place to stay. And, um, but Fred, man, his eyes got big as, you should have saw the guy. He was like, he saw me, he was almost like he saw a ghost, man. And, and so I want you to, his wedding reception the next day. I didn't go to his wedding. I went to his reception. And I met a, a good friend of a, a gentleman's name was Lonnie. And he was maybe a couple of years older than me. And he asked me what I do. I told him I sing. And he said, well, after the reception, uh, we're going to go to uh, some places around New York. And maybe we get somebody to let you get on stage and sing. And, um, but Fred didn't want me to go with it. Fred said, don't hang around this guy. He ain't nothing but trouble. He ain't nothing but trouble, he, you know. But I ain't seen nothing wrong with Lonnie. Lonnie was, a, he was just an exciting dude, you know. And um, I didn't see, you know, I guess he was looking out for my best interest. But we, he took me out to a club and I, I um, sang, a, they let me sing a couple of songs. I did a couple of James Brown songs. And the audience just start throwing money on the floor. So I was I had enough money to pay my rent for a few weeks. And I, I had enough to buy 
a good meal back then, but everything was like, like um, it wasn't like it is now. You could take a dollar and go a long ways back then. But anyway, everything turned out right. But about a year later, I met my wife, which we are still married today. So if it, it was, I think it was all in God's plan for me to do that. But looking back now, would I would have done that? No, sir, Bob. <laughs> Your mom was understandably a little, little freaked out by it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. She was, she was like, um, she was like, uh, she was crying when I got on the uh, bus. And uh, let me turn on this light there. Yeah, she was crying when I got on the bus, and um, and when I saw her cry, I uh, immediately um, wanted to break down in tears myself. So what I did, a couple of uh, sniffles and and uh, wiped the tears from my eyes, and uh, you know. I said, this is what I got to do. And it was a long bus ride to New York City. I, I was just like, I was just like, uh, Stephen Warner was saying that to, uh, on that song, man. I saw all them big skyscrapers. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, skyscrapers and everything. Yeah, yeah, man. But nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody gave me nothing to run for them, you know. It didn't happen like that. That song does not end well. Yeah, but it was fun. It was fun. And I'm glad I did. In retrospect, I found the, the love of my life, my wife, and uh, Christine, and been married 53 years. And let me tell you something. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it with a drop. Just drop over hat, I'd do it. But she, she's the best thing ever happened to me. Best thing ever happened to me. And um, as I said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. You know, for those that's looking for love, you know, there's a lot of people looking for love and trying to find love out here today. It's out there. But you got to open up your heart. You got to open up your you can't get You can't, you can't get love with a closed heart. It's got to be an open heart. And then you got to be careful because you know there's a lot of player players out there you know what I'm saying but I I got lucky I found mine thank God this was 1969 when he moved to the city is that right no I moved to, to the city in 60 the last part of 67 last part of 67 and and um yeah, the last part of six to seven. And I uh, met my wife in 68. I met her in 68. You moved out here at 67. It sounds like things happened pretty quickly. And you had a really strong run at just, a, just about until the 80s, that first time around. But things started getting um, difficult around the late 70s, early 80s. Because um, they the clubs didn't want um bands anymore. They wanted um they wanted um DJs. Yeah, it was disco time. Disco time, yeah. So man, I, as soon as I started happen, everything the music changed. Man, I, and I really, I really didn't know what to do. So I, I I spoke with my wife. I remember um, in the eighties, I didn't know what to do. So I got into real estate and um, started to um, be a landlord, and um, that was bringing in uh, constant money. And I felt like maybe I'm just not gonna be that singer that I wanted to be. So I began I began to to doubt my dreams. And then at this one I really started reading the Bible uh heavy. And going back 
to the dictionary, finding the etymology of the word and what it meant then. Because first thing I found found out when I saw reading the book that the word corruption truly truly means this this or its original meaning is changing the language, and the language is constantly changing. You know, that's that's corruption itself is changing the language. So that being said, so I started to read and read and um, hoping that, you know, by that time I had a family and I had these houses and I learned to do everything, man, put, you know, hot water, everything in there. And, uh, and it gave me sense of security because, you know, uh, I knew how to fix the majority of the things that would break. So I felt like, okay, well, it looked like I'm just not going to be that that singer that I thought I was going to be. I sort of have doubts. Doubts is no good. You know, when a person <clears throat> starts to get doubts about anything, that's, that's when a person needs to pray and ask from God for understanding. And that's what I did. I prayed. Kept on reading, kept on being the landlord, taking care of my kids, and um, and singing every now and then. We had some gigs here and there, but it wasn't like it was in the seventies. And what happened was, I think by faith, uh, by by faith, I think everything fell into place because I I kept my composure, I kept my um, focus. Regardless what was happening, I kept my focus. As a matter of fact, I got to a point where I was going to uh, abandon uh, that dream of being a singer. I was going to open up a restaurant. I went to open up a little, well, it wasn't, wasn't a restaurant. It really was a, my, my vision was to have, I, I would get this place over Newark. I had three apartments uh, on the upper floors and then I had a storefront at the bottom. I was going to turn the storefront into an eatery and like a when you come and get fish fish sandwiches I said, I said to myself, I saw a guy in Plainfield had a place like that looked like he was doing well. You go in there on Fridays and Saturday, you couldn't get in the place. <clears throat> he had all kind of people in there, you know, like buying, buying this product. So I said, how hard can it be to fry a fish? And um, you don't have to you don't have to be Einstein to do that. So I I took my wife over to Newark and showed her the place. And I've already talked to the realtor. Not the realtor and uh, he told me that I could get it. One thing I did do, I did keep good credit. You know, that's I would tell anybody now today. Make sure you keep your credit good. Good credit is the thing, especially now, even more now than it was then. But my wife looked at the place and she looked at me. She said, uh, I'm going to ask you something. What you know about fish? I said, uh, they taste good. <laughs> That's the only thing I can say. And uh, she said, suppose somebody come in and you don't keep these fish right or something and somebody come in and get sick on these fish. Oh, man, you'd be sued all over the place. I don't want to do this. I think you should stick with what you do. As a member of listen, music, you know, you see how that music didn't change. It ain't like it was. She said, you just got to make it like it was. So I, I'm down with you um, keeping uh, with your dream with music. So when she told me that, the little money that I had saved that I was going to put on that house, I went out to um, Sam Ash. I bought a whole lot of music equipment, man. I bought a, at the time, um, I didn't know anything about Pro Tools. I bought a Yamaha C1 computer with um, Voyager program, with a program called Voyager. So this was what late late nineties, uh, early nineties, early nineties, about nine. This is nineteen 
1990. Okay, because that's early for uh, Pro Tools and computer recording and all that. Yeah, well, well, they, that's the only thing that they had at the time, Voyetra. And what it was, it did, it allowed you to MIDI your, I had a, a Tascam 8-track recorder. And it allowed me to, to um, with, 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 uh, with my MIDI code, it would allow the 8-track tape to be right in sync with, uh, with the, com- with the computer. So I can get playbacks and, and, and on the, um, analog tape, I had a eight track tape machine. <clears throat> so it allowed the, the computer, the analog, I mean, the, um, the, um, timbrels that I was playing from the keyboard. It allowed that to sync up with what I had on the eight track. You know, I put my focus on the eight, eight track, but I didn't know that in the beginning. I had, after I bought the equipment, I bought all of this equipment, spent all of our saved money in, the, in this equipment. And I had it downstairs in the basement. And I could tell as time, as weeks um, went by, and I wasn't making any music down there. The wife became a little lyric. You know, we done spent all of this money, man. And I had to set up by the washing machine. And um, I had everything. I had it set up like it was supposed to be set up, but I still couldn't get it to work. And um, she would come down there, get ready to wash some clothes, said, patting her foot. I said, I'm going to get out of here because it's going to be a lot of questions and the answers now. And I don't have no answers for <laughs> Got all of the money tied up in this stuff. So anyway, that went on for a few weeks. And then I, then I found. Um, a friend of mine that knew how to work it. And he came, because I read the books and stuff, but I just couldn't, you know, it just, just wouldn't, um, the book, the way, way the book sounded, sounded like it was easy. But, uh, I was doing something wrong, which I later found out when I got this guy over to show me what I was doing wrong. When I got it working, oh man, it was like a sigh of relief. That's when I cut my first track. It's a song called Meet Me Tonight. It was in 1990. And um, Meet Me Tonight was one of those, uh, it's still on the internet. You can pull it up on the internet. The quality of it is not that good today. But the record band, people used to listen to that record and they fell in love with that record. You know, like um, the Southern Soul Market. Man, everywhere I would First, I was given the tapes. I would, I had both machines to make up tapes with. So I would make up tapes like at night during the week. And then on the weekend when I go out and play, I would just give the tapes away. I figured, you know, to get them in the car. Back then, you know, they had these cassette tapes. They get them in the car and they listen to me. And it worked. I was giving the tapes away. And the audience started getting bigger and bigger. Now here it is uh, about the uh, latter part of 90 or uh, early part of 91. Man, I'm like booking all around Newark and the Juke Joints and the places like Pat. You know, not real big places, maybe a couple hundred people. But to me at that time, and they paying uh, $10 to get in and um, and I made deals with the club where I kept the bulk of the money as long as I brought them some good entertainment in there. And I had a guy to play records uh, the majority of the night, and I had a, a show on my DAT machines, which was about close to an hour long, about 50 minutes. And I would come out there and sing with tracks. Oh, man, I was packing the places. Packing the places everywhere I was going. And then it spread it all the way down south. Now I'm in Mississippi. I'm in Alabama. I'm in North Carolina. And, um, then I signed a deal with Ace Records down in um, Jackson, Mississippi. And I stayed on the blues circuit for about for about five years, maybe seven years. Because I got off the blues circuit at the end of the 90s. But by that time, I met Gabe about 
96 or 97. They give me a phone call, man. Like at that time, man, I'm selling records and I'm I'm um I'm uh, doing these shows locally around and playing down in Mississippi and places. Hey man, I'm you know everything is cool compared to what it was. And because I was making a lot more money than I was making. Uh, prizes and then, and then he, I get this guy to call me on the, on the, on the uh, phone. It was Philip Lehman and Gabriel Roth, and they sound like some pretty intelligent guys, man. You know, but they really knew what they was talking about when they was talking about music. So we made a deal, and he told me to uh, come over to Long Island to a studio in Long Island, and we agreed. I made a deal about cutting a, a, a record form of 45. So when I get to the studio in Long Island, I was expecting these older guys. You know, because they, they were so, they knew everything about soul music, man. And then when I knocked on the door, man, I said, this little kid, this curly-haired kid, stick his head with my, I said, yes, I'm here to see Mr. Roth. He said, I am Mr. Roth. I said, I said to myself, I didn't say it out loud, I said to myself, I'm a kid. You know? And then I get inside, and they turn on the tracks. Track sounds hot. So, um, I go on to cut the record. Uh, let a man do what he want to do. And steam train. And from that record that I cut with him that day, uh, Sharon Jones was discovered. Uh, she did the background on that record. And, and, um, I started tune with the Sugarman Three all over Europe and places. And, uh, everything started from that. The whole, but, but it was, um, it was Desco Records at the time. It wasn't Daptone. And everything started from there. Sharon Jones, myself, Charles Bradley, everybody started from that from that instant. And that's the reason why I believe that things are actually destined, you know. Sometimes we want it a lot earlier than we than we would receive it. But for all of those that those people that truly believe that your day will come, I would advise you to hang in there. Cause it's worthwhile hanging there and don't lose your, don't lose your confidence and your faith. But that's, that's, that's how I started. It's been going ever since. Two very clear instances of you just having to have just complete, complete faith in yourself and complete faith that things are going to work out because, you know, just like the, like the original story of you being 17 and moved to New York City, the story of you, you know, you've got a family to support and you're spending your family's money on all this equipment. Yeah. In both cases, things could have turned out much differently. It could have been very ugly. <laughs> when you start spending that money, man, you start spending that money, that money don't, doesn't come back. If that money doesn't come back, man, you're in trouble, big trouble. But you have to take, you have to take whatever you feel inside and you have to take that uh Feel it and, and analyze it, and if it, if it, what you feel, um, that you should do, nobody can make that decision but you. And uh, so it happens in my case, it turned out nice, but it could, it could, it could have been, it could have gotten ugly very quick. Maybe the big lesson from that story is uh, marry somebody a lot smarter than you. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. That is totally correct. Because I do credit my uh, wife for for encouraging me. And uh, because I think when I think in retrospect, if I would have gotten that restaurant, I think things would have gotten ugly very quick. <laughs> Former soul singer Poisons 5. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I took her advice. 